Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, uh, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be uh, back again here with you. I imagine uh, some of you are probably surprised that I'm still alive. (laughs) And perhaps some of you are wishing I weren't, but anyway, I am here, and my name is Howard McPhee. I uh, am on staff here at Grace Toronto. Now the Apostle Paul, having concluded his rather extensive defense and explanation of his apostolic ministry that he began at chapter 2 verse 14, turns rather abruptly to address a a situation, a concrete situation in Corinth here at verse 14 of chapter 6. It seems that the Corinthian believers, seems that the Corinthian believers uh, were in danger of entering into activities Perhaps they weren't simply in danger of, perhaps some of them have already entered into those activities in which they were forming a relationship with their Corinthian neighbors, unbelieving neighbors, which was seriously endangering their relationship with God. And thus the Apostle Paul says to them, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is, do enter into a relationship with unbelievers that is mismatched. Now in using that language of being unequally yoked, the Apostle Paul has uh, has in mind and is drawing from that Old Testament command that instructed the Israelite that as he was plowing, or was going to plow his fields, he was not to uh, he was not to yoke a an ox to a donkey. He was not to bring them together in the action of plowing, and that command is 
part of one of a serious a series of commands to the Israelite in which the Israelite was for example not to sow uh, two different seeds in the same field nor was the Israelite to crossbreed animals different animals now these commands were not really agricultural farming principles Rather, they were commands that were to drive home to the Israelite in his everyday work day that he was not to become become spiritually involved in the religion of the neighboring nations. They were to drive home to him more specifically that they were not to enter into the temple worship and they were not to and, and become involved in idolatry and along with that idolatry, the spiritual, the, uh, 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 the uh, prost- uh, prostitu- uh, temple prostitution that would take place as well there. They were to remain, these commands were to, reminding them to remain separate, spiritually separate that is, spiritually separate from the religious life of the neighboring nations. Now, when the Apostle Paul says that the members of the Corinthian church, the believers, are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he does not mean that they are to have uh, no social action at all with uh, their uh, their Corinthian neighbors. Uh, We can remember in uh, 1 Corinthians, he uh, instructs them that, well, if, you're, if your uh, Corinthian unbelieving neighbor invites you uh, to dinner in his home, go with him. And in fact, you don't have to worry about the meat at all, where it came from. What, he has, uh, what he's referring to here is that uh, they were not to enter into relationships that were uh, profoundly spiritual, that had a spiritual or religious dimension to them. They were not to enter into relationships that had a spiritual dimension to them. They were to, in that, and the spiritual realm remains separate from, in the spiritual, in the religious realm, remain spiritually separate as far as relationships were concerned. Now, he goes on to drive home the point. Drive home the point. He first begins to say, he says, um, well, what partnership, what partnership does righteousness have with (coughs) lawlessness? And there he reminds us that you and the Corinthian believers have uh, uh, completely different ethical standards from the unbelievers that you interact with. The believer lives by every every word that proceeds from the mouth of God that he finds in the details of the Bible. The unbeliever lives according to ultimately, ultimately I say, according to his own wisdom. And then he goes on to say, what, what, What uh, fellowship does light have with darkness? Absolutely nothing. 
Absolutely nothing. Because the, uh, the believer belongs to the kingdom of light and the unbeliever to the kingdom of darkness. They belong to two entirely contradictory realms. And what is vital about the fact that they are on a journey, that each are on a journey to entirely different destinations. Those who belong to the kingdom of light, the believer, are moving to that eternal, that dwelling place of light. And those who belong to the kingdom of darkness are moving to that eternal darkness where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he says, what accord does Christ have with Belial? Belial being an unusual word for Satan and the powers of darkness. Well, they have absolutely nothing because believers have their, uh, they have different masters. They are subject to different lords. The believer to Christ, the unbeliever ultimately to the powers of darkness. And then he keeps on going, driving home this point, making clear how important it is he says, uh, well, what, uh, what does the believer and the unbeliever have in common? Absolutely nothing. That which defines you as a believer and that which constitutes you as a believer and that which defines an unbeliever as an unbeliever and what constitutes an unbeliever as an unbeliever have absolutely nothing in common. And finally, in this series of rhetorical contrasts, he comes to that contrast which will inform us as to what is the issue that he is addressing that is so problematic and so dangerous in the church at Corinth. He says, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. It would seem that uh, the Corinthian believers, members of the church in Corinth, were, uh, the members of the church in Corinth were, were uh, not only uh, were uh, in danger of entering into, were, were rather I should say were were uh, either in danger of, or perhaps some were, of joining with their uh, Corinthian neighbors in uh, participating in the festivals, the celebrations, and the events uh, the, of the many temples, which were the center of Corinthian life in the city of Corinth. And as they became, as they joined their Corinthian friends in these temple worship, they were becoming involved in idolatry. And as Paul had reminded them in his first letter to, a, to the Corinthians, that involvement with, with, with idolatry could lead to a participation in, a communion with, a communion in, a fellowship with the demonic powers of darkness. And it's most likely that if they, if they were to engage in this uh, temple activities and become involved in the idolatry of those temples that they would also probably come into uh, that relationship of uh, engaging temple prostitutes. 
Now, the Apostle Paul appeals to a number of Old Testament passages. He brings them together, kind of forms them, uh, brings from these Old Testament passages uh, uh, commandment, uh, uh, promises and commandments. Promises and commandments uh, that uh, he applies as they have come to fulfillment in the new covenant. As they have come to fulfillment and application in the new covenant in and through Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. The Christ in whom they have put their faith as believers. And these commands, uh, these promises, uh, <clears throat> remind the Corinthian believer that, uh, that they are indwelt by God, that God dwells within them. Dwells within them, at least I would translate the, passages, the passage, in them individually as individuals, <coughs> and dwells among them and in them as the body of Christ, as the church. And therefore, because they are, have experienced this amazing reality in its fullness, temples of the living God, individually and collectively, it is absolutely necessary. It is profoundly necessary. It is urgently necessary that they separate from all of that which contaminates their lives and hinders and corrupts their relationship with the living God who dwells within them. And he remind, these passages remind uh, the Corinthians that the God who dwells within them is their God, and they are his people, and <coughs> he is their father, and they are his sons and daughters that they dwell, God dwells in them, they are the temple of the living God, and they belong to the family of God. All of that to make clear to them that they are to separate themselves from relationships with their unbelieving neighbors that are leading them into this kind of thing. Now, I, uh, I realize that this week not too many of you are going to be uh, tempted to involve, become involved with idols. And you might ask me, well, Howard, this is all fine and dandy, but what does this have to do with me? 
Well, we'll come more specifically later on, but at this passage, these, this principle that the Apostle Paul gives to us here about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers does have wider application. And one of those applications, I think, is quite relevant to this church, to many of you in this church, and to people in many other churches as well. And that is in this sense, that this passage, this principle of being, not being unequally yoked applies to the marriage situation, which is how often this passage is understood. But this is, it is not actually directly speaking to marriage, I will admit that. But the principle can be applied to marriage. Marriage is a unique human relationship. Marriage is a profoundly spiritual relationship. It has an amazing spiritual dimension to it. The marriage relationship of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, is modeled after the relationship of Christ to his church. And not only is it modeled after <coughs> the relationship of Christ to the church, the, the relationship of the husband and the wife in marriage is to point forward to the relationship and to, in a sense, model and dramatize the relationship of Christ to his church. Husbands are to support and encourage, rather, let me back up. Believing husbands, believing husbands are to encourage and to support their believing wives in their devotion to Christ and his cause in the world. And believing wives are to encourage and support their believing husbands in their devotion to Christ and the cause of Christ in the world. It is a profoundly spiritual relationship. The communion and union and fellowship in the marriage is holy. And thus, well, that, those words of Paul remind you, and I'll admit, these are challenging words in the, in, in, in the world, in, in the church today, because singleness is, it seems to me, a major problem. But the word of God comes to you with regard to your, the marriage situation, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. Now, uh, I will <clears throat> note another application. I realize it's uh, not the issue now that it was back in the 70s and 80s, which always amazes me that most of you weren't born then. And I was. And often I'm talking, and I'll say something, you know, and I'll refer to something. Who knows what it might be? And the people, you people in this church, will sort of look at me with blank faces because they were born in the 90s, and I'm talking about something that happened in 1982. But, Nevertheless, I will, 
Although it isn't the issue that is burning, it was burning back in the 1780s when the New Age movement was around, this, uh, this principle of being, not being unequally yoked uh, would rule out seeking a relationship with someone, a believer seeking a relationship with someone who would, or something as well, someone or something that would enable them uh, to make contact with the unseen world, to make contact with the unseen world, not with God, the unseen God, but with the unseen world for information, for guidance, for healing. For as we've already mentioned, Paul reminds us that interaction with the unseen world can often lead to, or sometimes lead to, communion and fellowship with the powers of dark, with the demonic powers of darkness, with demons. And the principle that I would suggest that this principle here rules out altogether that attempt to bypass God and move towards an interaction with the unseen world for the help you need. Now, moving back to the flow of our passage, the Apostle Paul gives us a uh, summarizing and generalized in statement. He says, since we have these promises, the promises that God dwells in us, and uh, since we have these promises that God dwells in us and that we are, uh, that God is our God and we are his people and that the God who dwells in us is our heavenly father and that we are his family. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, before we look at it specifically, we must remind ourselves of how is it, how is it that a believer becomes indwelt by God? <coughs> well, when a person puts his, his or her faith in Jesus Christ, they are united to Jesus Christ, united to Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection, and in being done, united to him in his death and resurrection, they are raised, as we read in first, uh, uh, chapter 5, they are raised as a new creation. Not only forgiven, yes, but indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that God dwells in his people by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, that the believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is a new man, a new woman, a new creation, now empowered to live the new life. Now, when we keep in mind that, that you are a new creation, that you sit here today and you go out in this week, bringing with you, so to speak, as a traveling temple of God, empowered by the power of God as the Spirit dwells within you to interact with this world in a way that pleases God. He says, because of this reality, 
Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, perhaps there's someone here, <coughs> and I hope there is, uh, who is uh, exploring the Christian faith, is exploring uh, this Jesus Christ and his significance and reality. And perhaps uh, out of your experience, perhaps with the church in some way, or perhaps with some Christians in some way, or perhaps in some other way, this word holiness is something that you sort of pull back from. You don't find very attractive. It's not something that you would like to be. And find it difficult now to keep listening to what we're going to say. Or perhaps you're a Christian here. And in, uh, it's not a very, you find this word holiness not very attractive either. Because perhaps in your past experience in the, in the church, you have experienced the, uh, the uh, overwhelming, deadening legalism that just seems to rob the Christian life of any joy, peace, <coughs> or goodness. Well, I just want to remind you, whether you're here seek, looking into the faith or whether you are a believer, that the standard of holiness is <coughs> Jesus. The standard of holiness is Jesus. To be holy is to be like Jesus. For Jesus is the Holy One. The more, uh, the more you become like Jesus, the more holy you become. Now, keeping that in mind, that Jesus is the pattern of holiness. What we are trying to become like. Now, the Apostle Paul says that we live out our lives here in the city of Toronto and at the center of those lives is the fact that we are um, that we are uh, <clears throat> bringing our holiness to completion that we are bringing our holiness to completion is a is a process. Thank you. Is a process in which we are progressively seeking to cleanse our cleanse our lives from the sin, from the uncleanness from the contamination of sin, putting it to death, ridding ourselves of them. On the one hand, the sins of the body and the sins of the spirit, the sins of all the sins that we find are tempted with and struggle with. On the one side, and as we bring it to completion, we not only put to death the sin in our lives, but we put into practice Christ-like behavior. To bring our completion to, to bring to completion is a process, it's progressive, it's ongoing, is a progressive process in which we are continually growing in putting to death our sin and putting into practice a more and more and more Christ-like life. 
that we as individuals are holy people in the midst of this city of Toronto, holy Christ-like people. Now there's a lot that could be said, uh, uh, we could say a lot about this passage, about that statement of bringing our uh, holiness to completion. But I want to focus on two things that the Apostle Paul mentions here. Two things that I think are very important to bring to the table when we are struggling with the sin in our lives and struggling to put into practice Christ-like behavior. When we're struggling with that, when we're seeking to bring our lives to our holiness to completion, we think of these two things. We bring these two things into our lives always. One is that as we, as we, uh, uh, that we are the temple of God, that the Spirit dwells within us. And therefore, as the temple of God, as the temple of the very presence of Son, it's absolutely necessary. It's a profound necessity that we put to death the sin in our lives and we put into practice Christ-like behavior. As you travel in the city of Toronto, you are a traveling temple of God, empowered by the Spirit to do that which is absolutely necessary, seek to make progress in overcoming and deliver for the sin in your life and becoming more like Christ. And of course, because you are the temple of God and the Spirit dwells within you, that as you seek to make this kind of progress in your lives, it is in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is in reliance on the Spirit's power that you must depend. It is in the power of the Spirit that you might put to death the sin, cleanse yourself of that sin, and put into practice Christ-like behavior. And to, to depend on the Spirit, to rely on the Spirit is what? It is to pray. In, especially in those situations when you are tempted and struggling with sin, especially when you were in those situations in the relationships when, when Christ-like behavior is at stake, in those specific relationships, it's vital that you are praying, Holy Spirit of God, show me the necessity of abandoning sin and of practicing Christ, empower me to so do. It is in a self-conscious, living out your life self-consciously, asking the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, to make you holy Christ-like in the situations that are very often extremely challenging. And then, there is a second thing that the Apostle Paul focuses on here and brings to the table. And one I think that we often neglect. He says that we are to bring our holiness to completion. That is, we are to progressively become like Christ. He says that we do that in the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord. We live out our lives bringing our Holy Spirit in the fear of the Lord. Now, to fear God is to acknowledge that he is the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness, that he is majestic, that he is holy, that he is glorious, that he reigns and he rules. It is not only to, uh, to acknowledge that, and it is to have a profound sense 
of reverence and awe for him because of who he is as the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness. And it is, it is to know, to acknowledge, and to have a deep sense and conviction and to be convinced to some degree that he rightfully deserves our obedience and rightfully we are to obey him, to be convinced of that. And so we are to fear God, convinced that we are to be obedient to him, that we might honor him. Now, as we think about the fear of God, we must also remember that God is love and that God has, if you're a believer, he has loved you from before the foundation of the world. He has set his affection on you and determined to save you. And in time, he sent into this world his beloved son to die in your place that you might be raised, not only forgiven and receive eternal life, but that you might begin in fear of him to live a life that honors him. And so the fear of God is full of the love of God. Christian fear, Christian fear, believing fear is fear that involves love. Believing love involves fear. You cannot have true love without fear and you cannot have true fear without love. But the fear of God, full of love, is that as you, live, as you struggle with the sin in your lives, which convinces you and moves you to the absolute necessity of obeying God, of putting to death the sin in your life and putting into practice the behavior of Christ. And of course, which too often we forget, I think, that the fear of God full of love, full of the love of God, I should say, full of the love of God, the fear of God, full of the love of God, is that which moves us, which that's which moves us to be fearful, that moves us to be fearful of disregarding his commands, of dismissing the importance of putting Christ's Christ, being Christ-like, that dismisses taking seriously the sin in our lives. We are to fear God. It is a fear of God that is full of the love of God, that drives us and convinces us that we are to obey Him, and it makes us fearful, fearful of neglecting His commands and the pursuit of holiness. You go out into this week, into a very challenging world, a very challenging world. You go out into this week, uh, remember, as the temples of the living God indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God, and you go out to live your life in the fear of God. Amen.